This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation. Well, sir, it's been a while. It has been a while. And in the interim, we've raised funds, got a new website under construction, celebrated Thanksgiving. I drove across the South. You drove across the country. Um, we've been busy. Turns out. Turns out we have. <laughs> and, and that busyness has somewhat slowed down the production. But the flip side is that I have taped a whole bunch of conversations that I will be editing once I finally slow down in Tucson, which is going to be in less than two weeks now. That's insane. It's been, it's been a long, crazy ride. <laughs> it will have been over seven and a half months of travel, and then uh, I've recorded so much stuff that we're, we're going to still be doing this into next April for sure, so we're going to hit the one-year mark. That's awesome. Well, I think it's awesome. Hopefully our listeners do. <laughs> I'd say if they've made it this far, they... Deserve a medal? Yeah. <laughs> we'll be sending out gold stars to everyone who emails us and says they're still alive out there. We just want to ping you. But we also want to thank everyone who's donated. I'm not doing the design, but uh, I have a sense of what it's going to look like. It's going to be really fun. So thank you, everyone, for listening and chipping in. So let's move into this massively overdue episode. This is Chuck Collins great-grandson of Oscar Mayer, which is just a fun footnote. That's not really why we're talking to him, but it is partially why we're talking to him, because it means that he was born into the 1%. We've talked to a few people that are sort of hovering on the edges of the 1%, but this is the first time we're, we're firmly talking to money. And he's also very interesting as a member of the 1%, because he's all about leveling the playing field, the playing because he's all about leveling the playing field a bit between the 1% and the 99%. I love the idea of slipping up and saying leveling the paying field. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> that does sort of get us into the question of taxes, doesn't it? It does. So maybe he's not into leveling the paying field. He's just into leveling the playing field. He wants a, a progressive paying field, as it were, where the upper classes pay more money where the inheritance tax sticks around. And he's organized a network of multimillionaires and billionaires to lobby for what they call fair taxation. That group is called United for a Fair Economy and Wealth for the Common Good. And while we're listing his credentials, let's also say that he directs the Institute for Policy Studies program on inequality in the common good. Noticing a common trend here. You won't be surprised if we spend a lot of time talking about class in this conversation. And earlier in the series, 
we whined a lot that we weren't having enough conversations about it. Then we got Cameron and Priscilla. But this one's very different than Cameron and Priscilla. We won't get into that until the end more, but we want to sort of put that idea out there for you as you listen to the episode. Uh, I'm Chuck Collins. I grew up in the Midwest, in Michigan. I was uh, born into a kind of the 1% family, the uh, Oscar Mayer, my great-grandfather's the meatpacker Oscar Mayer. So I grew up in uh, a privileged suburb of Detroit, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. I went to the same high school with Mitt Romney. Uh, He was a little older than me, but I knew who he was. But I also, having grown up in the Detroit area, was very aware of sort of the polarization of race and class and to go to a baseball game at Tiger Stadium meant really crossing the race and class divide as wide as it gets in America. So I think that little seed was planted in me that the concerns about disparity of income and wealth and opportunity. And I moved to New England when I was very young. I left home when I was 17 and did a variety of odd jobs, including was an organizer trying to sh- keep the Seabrook nuclear power plant from being built. But then uh, I worked on issues around tax fairness here in Massachusetts and um, helped start an organization called United for a Fair Economy that's still around. And the purpose of that organization was to draw attention to the problems of income and wealth disparity and uh, did a lot of research and more organizing and book writing and kind of popular education on those issues of why the gap matters and what we can do about it. Since 2006, I've been at the Institute for Policy Studies and oversee three pieces of work. One is work on these issues of inequality in class. And here in this building, there's a little subproject called Class Action, a website called classism.org, which does work on these issues of class and inequality. Another person, my, part of my work is something I would call organizing the 1%. So there's a network called Wealth for the Common Good that has hundreds of multimillionaires and billionaires in it. And we organize an effort to preserve the estate tax, the inheritance tax, and lobby for progressive taxes. But it's sort of like engaging high net worth individuals. So again, sort of bridging class. But the third area is this transition to a new economy. And that's where the work with David Corton and I kind of intersect is all these things are interconnected. How do we prepare ourselves for an economy that's based on both a whole different energy situation as well as hopefully a society that's more equitable, that doesn't have these kind of grotesque disparities of income and wealth. So, I want to bookmark that yeah. thought because that's that's going to be a huge yeah. thing. Let's start with the uh, class divide. So if you grew up thinking, maybe not thinking of yourself, just being part of the, the 1%, I'm curious about sort of the move to think about these larger issues as problems. Why are they problems? Well, I think even then I saw that there was something fundamentally unfair about it. I didn't sort of internalize those divides as, oh, this is a reflection of deservedness. There's some people who work harder and smarter, and there's some people who, for various reasons, don't have access to the same levels of income and wealth. So I kind of early on figured out that it was sort of a rigged game, if you will, that the rules of the economy... The rules broadly defined as, you know, tax policy, trade policy. The rules were sort of tilted in my favor. And at the same time, there was a whole sort of mythology or a story about wealth and deservedness that I had been told. So I was sort of questioning that. But 
what I've come to appreciate is that these wealth disparities, which really started in the late 70s to kind of pick up steam and uh, really have taken off, you know, 1980, really over the last 10 years, the gap has grown. The share of income going to the richest 1%, the share of wealth held by the 1%, the erosion of kind of a ladder of opportunity. So these inequalities basically trash everything we care about. Too much inequality encourages a money system that basically just destroys the earth. Too much inequality undermines public health. Too much concentrated wealth is concentrated power, so that undermines the functioning of a democratic system. Three days ago, the International Monetary Fund put out a report saying it's bad for the economy and growth. Too much income inequality undercuts the healthy functioning of an economy. Sports, culture, mobility, keep going down the list. What, you know, art. And at the core of that is when, when a society pulls apart too much, uh, there is a breakdown in solidarity, that sense that what happens to you actually does matter to me. When people are too far apart, they're not in relationship anymore. They're not in the same community. They're operating in parallel universes, and therefore they start to create mythologies and stories and fear, fear of each other. You know, the 1% fears the bottom 20%. The bottom 20% thinks that all of the people in the 1% are demonic, you know. And so you start to not have authentic conversation anymore. You're just kind of... So that disconnect leads to a breakdown and of all kinds of things. That's what I was going to ask, yeah, where that, where that goes. Yeah, basically it means that... Uh, so public health, if your health is intertwined with my health, if we're in the same community, in the same food system, in the same health centers, in the same buildings, then you have a stake in my health and I have a stake in your health. So inequality matters. If we keep on the track that we're going, if we keep polarizing, then our experience is more similar to like Brazil. There's a very small wealthy elite. They live behind walls. They drive their bulletproof Mercedes-Benz from their enclave residential area to their enclave shopping area and go out to lunch. The children have bodyguards when they go to school. You know, it's it's not a pretty picture. And then you have this huge majority of people who live in, you know, the favelas and live in desperation. And that that's a grim picture. And yet it's also a picture that makes me think of, well, so much of history. That's a world that has existed. That's a world that exists now. That's a world that we can easily go back to. Was the middle class some sort of aberration? And when I say aberration, I'm thinking like a 300-year or 400-year aberration. But uh, More like a 60-year aberration. In, in the U.S., the certainly. States, yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that kind of mid-20th century swell. Yeah. Is that something that we can keep, or are there bigger structural forces that are going to pull this apart? Is the game sort of fixed by right. the people in control? Well, uh, it, it it's not at all uh, fixed. Let's just look in the United States little bubble. We can come back to globally, but what we the experiment that we undertook really after the first Gilded Age. So, if you think you know, a hundred years ago, we were living in a period of grotesque inequality, and we had World War One, and we had a depression, and we had World War Two. But along the way, we did a number of things that sort of ensured that after World War Two, we were not going to have these grotesque inequalities. We may have inequality. There is something about free market economies and 
even you know with strong robust governments you can you can have a sort of scandinavian style society where you have floor that people can't fall through you don't have people who are homeless you have people dying for lack of access to health care there are some basic human rights but within that you can have fairly wealthy people they're going to be paying taxes that you know help ensure that there's a healthy society overall we don't have to have these extreme inequalities. We can have modest inequalities and have a pretty good society. That's totally attainable. And the experiment after World War II was that we were making progress really over 30 years toward a more equal society. And one of the things I try to argue about the current moment is that these extreme polarizations of inequality actually are bad for everybody, including the rich that they actually backfire. Does that work? I mean, when you're having that conversation with people in the 1%, obviously, I think of, you know, Buffett's op-ed that seemed, like fell like this bombshell for so many people where he was saying tax. Is that common? You know, it's actually more common than we think. So I have had a lot of conversations that I think have been good, and there's some that are like a brick wall. You know, if I were going to kind of simplistically divide the universe or, the, you know, my experience of the 1% is there's a segment of the 1%, a very large segment that actually understand what, that too much inequality is bad, that it's not good to live in a society where the rules are rigged, whether it's in your favor or against you. And there are people in the 1% who get up every morning and try to create greater equality and fairness and are really engaged in children's issues, health care, the environment both philanthropically as well as sort of putting their whole body and soul into social change work. Then there's this segment of the 1%, I call them the, the rule riggers, the game fixers. They use their considerable wealth and power to change the rules of the economy and society to benefit themselves in a very narrow way. And uh, you know, the Koch brothers or you know, people who, they own an oil company and they use their power to block changes in energy policy. And it's very short term. They use their wealth and power strategically to advance their interests. Most of them actually believe that what they're advocating for is in the larger common good. They would say, oh, this is actually for the common good. There's a few people who would just say, the rest of the world be damned, and I don't give a shit about poor people, and, you know. There's something, like, perversely respectable about that level of self-awareness, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. So you in know, those cases, you can just say this person embraces their greed, but in most cases, you have people who think they're doing good, but are still stonewalling a lot of these. Yeah, I mean, they're doing good equality. because they have that Ayn Rand view of the world, which yes. is there's the prime movers, of which I am one, and I'm the engine of the train, and then everyone else is just along for the ride. And the best thing government can do is either deregulate or subs hand subsidies over to me because I'm the engine of the train. So they've, they've created a self-mythology around their own worth and deservedness that is quite disproportionate to their actual contribution. But it's, it's validated. You know, the business press goes out and, you know, Larry Ellison, what, what brilliant thing did you do this week that has made the world better or whatever, you know? And right. Then, well, hell, let me tell you, you know. So you have a certain reinforcement for that. But there's a story I would tell you, which is, you know, when I worked on trying to preserve the inheritance tax, we had a group of a couple thousand multimillionaires and billionaires saying, keep the inheritance tax, tax wealth, it's a good thing, it's a fair thing. Well, that was kind of an unusual group, right? Wealthy people saying, tax us. And Bill Gates' dad, I wrote a book with Bill Gates' dad on 
why we should keep the estate tax wealth in our commonwealth. And I organized Warren Buffett and some of those people to be very outspoken. And it was very, very effective. And part of it was because they sort of popped the myth of what I would call the great man theory of wealth creation. There's a few prime movers out there riding the rails that, that do all the wealth creation. And when you talk to those folks, they will tell you a story about wealth creation, which is, look, I, I live in a society. Yes, I work hard and I'm creative and I get up every morning and I do my part, but I'm operating in a larger system and I'm sowing seeds and ground that's already fertile for wealth creation. And those that fertility comes from societal investments and other people's work and the commons. And these people see the web. And that... That term has been expressed in different ways in this project, but I wonder how you convince someone who maybe even sees it intellectually but doesn't kind of feel being part of that web because that seems like such an integral part to the argument that you're making to the 1%. You've got to really feel that this will somehow come back to you. How do you feel the web? I like uh, this guy Charles Eisenstein you may have come across who wrote Sacred Economics. You know, So we have these two big disconnects, right? We have this disconnect with nature which is we are part of the nature system. We're not sort of just sitting next to it. So one of the doors into understanding the commons is just to sort of, oh yeah, I'm part of the web here, the ecological web. Then there's the social web. You know, We don't see that we are part of a social web, that we're interdependent. There's all this fascinating kind of new brain science that shows that actually we are hardwired to be deeply interconnected. We are hardwired to be mutual, that our brains light up when we're engaged with other humans in a common endeavor. It's as fabulous as chocolate and sex. It's, it's like, that's, that is our nature, actually. When we are taken out of that community web, we actually hurt and our brain registers as if we were just hit physically. You know, so again, talking about the people in the 1% who I've talked to who say, look, I earned all this wealth myself. I didn't get any help along the way. And I really don't have any obligation back to the society. When I've kind of dug in there and interviewed people, what I've found is that there's usually, first, there's a lot of truth in their story, which is they probably made a huge and heroic sacrifice to get to where they were. First generation immigrant who comes to this country with nothing and really makes huge sacrifices to their health by overworking or being exposed to some dangerous situation. They make an emotional sacrifice. They have to shut out parts of their own life and humanness to make it. They miss their children's childhood. They miss their children's sporting event or their school play or they, they are making a heroic sacrifice, often for the next generation. And those folks know how important an individual is. They are like Ayn Rand's heroic individual. And we don't get anywhere by denigrating that. We certainly don't get anywhere by not honoring that. But what I think that does is it creates a wound. And it's a wound that basically then makes it impossible to hear or at least feel experience on a very gut level the gifts of the commons, or certainly the society has a claim on me. You know, I've gotten right to that point where it's like, well, yes, you made those heroic sacrifices, and yes, those should be honored and rewarded and celebrated, but 
if you were making those heroic sacrifices in a different soil, there are other places in the world where you could toil very hard with nothing to show. And in fact, many people do toil very hard with very little show. Isn't there something about the society that made this possible? You're not an island. You could not have accomplished this without the web of other people. And that's not even getting into the fact that race or sex or all of these other things also play into that too. That's right. Some people got on the wealth building train and other people, you know, were kept barred at the station from getting on the train. There's all kinds of... But it's an attractive worldview for somebody who's at the top. You probably have a better shot than most of really changing the ideas of these people. Do you think we have to get to a point where things go wrong enough where they really feel it? Or is it something we can sort of reason our way to? That's a good question. I mean, I think, first of all, we shouldn't be sitting around waiting for the 1% to recover their empathy. We just have to go out and try to organize a world where as much of the commons is protected for everyone's use, you know? So we have to resist efforts to privatize water or resist efforts to destroy the earth for short-term gain. That said, I mean, I'm particularly interested in this, how do we enlist allies in the 1%. So there already are allies. They need to be engaged and included in part of the social movements. And, and there's more allies there to be won over. I do think that there will be bumps along the road, shock points, catastrophes, whatever, that will reveal that it is not really in the self-interest of the 1% to allow things to deteriorate further, certainly in terms of the climate, extreme weather, you know, they're, they're, you know, the rich are, have a lot of coastal property, for instance. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be affected by sea level rise disproportionately. In other ways, they're not going to have to live with the downside of the collapsing food systems or the spread of disease in the same way they'll fortress themselves off. But here's one of the pieces that I didn't mention, which is I actually think for people in the 1%, it's bad for our spirits and our souls and our psychological health to be disconnected, to be walled off. And so therefore, it's also in the self-interest of the 1% to rejoin humanity. Much of class and isolation and pulling away is this sort of illusion that somehow we can be apart from the suffering that is in our midst. And that's a myth. The social isolation that many people in the 1% experience is, uh, is a wound. That's getting into something that I really wanted to talk about, which is sources of value. In our conversation thus far, we've talked a lot about if you are, say, in the 1%, hear how things really tangibly come back and affect you. This will make me sick. This will make me unhappy. But I think there's something in our society we're talking about some big trends that sort of push us towards alienation. Yeah. Um, now, do we think that getting into a better income bracket gets us away from that? And what is sort of the value system beneath that belief? Is it just the simple, we value material goods, we value the power that money gives us to do things as individuals, be it to travel, be it to educate ourselves? And is there a different type of value that we're totally overlooking here? Well, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot going on there. I think that there is a material basis to happiness, obviously. You know, and so that's kind a, of the floor we were talking about. Yeah, earlier. there's a point at which aspiring and attaining some modicum of security, economic well-being, and, and 
community well-being is necessary. I think we focused more on the individual economic well-being model that also required a huge amount of consumption of ecological resources, misses the community well-being, the tribe, our sense that actually we are supposed to be part of extended units that are tribal, that are kinship, that are community, that our children actually don't do that well when they're just in these little units that they need to be brought into circles of aunties and uncles and and neighbors who are also taking responsibility for their well-being. We've sort of left out a whole piece of what it means to sort of create well-being and happiness. But then they're sort of like creating disconnection from suffering, which has gone way overboard. So now we're creating little islands of our nuclear families that are trying to buffer ourselves from suffering. Our whole culture, in a sense, is like, but the 1%, it's like hyper-disconnected. It's hyper-removed. But suffering actually in a tribe or a kinship network, there are always people who are being born and there are always people dying and there are people who are sick and there are people who are healthy. And if our children don't grow up in a kinship network, then we don't understand that that is the nature of human life. You know, we just kind of create comfort as if that were in and itself the goal of life, physical comfort. Um, and labor, uh, disconnecting from the, the basic work that we need to do. So children gr learning how to grow food and take care of animals and having meaningful jobs from a very young age. You know, so many young people have like, into their 20s, have not made any meaningful contribution to the tribe or the kinship network. They're just there to consume. And they go off to college and college is like a big cruise ship you know, with an all-you-can-eat cruise ship experience. This energy at this stage of their life could be deployed in a hundred ways that would be both meaningful to them and hugely helpful to the society. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if we said, look, there's a primary value here in human interconnection, face-to-face uh, -face physical. We are animals. We're fundamentally animals that are social animals that uh, raise our young in herds. You know? That is intriguing. I was thinking of Lawrence Torcello, who's a philosopher I talked to, and a big part of our conversation was education. You know, how do you even begin to introduce the ideas of thinking ourselves as a unit? I mean, we can talk about empathy and brain science and seeing systems that are big enough where you can understand how things circle back to you. But of course, there is an educational foundation beneath that. I mean, I would take off from that and say there's education for, you know, whatever, the citizenship, pluralism, you know, there's sort of the classic liberal ideal or the John Locke. And then there's sort of like education for planetary interconnection. How do we school ourselves to really think that we're so disconnected as a species from the web of life and planet and our own animal natures, et cetera, you know, like this generation of children who have no concept of where their food comes from, how the earth works. My my daughter, uh, recovering city kid, you know, she's trying to learn about where her food comes from, mm -hmm. has a very close friend, very smart, who just said to her one day, so applesauce comes from apples? You realize, wow, there's some disconnect there, you know? So I think that that, I think that's true. There's some ways in which our education system very early on is reinforces certain disconnects and probably more implicit rather than explicitly. I mean, I think 
we are in a deep shift. We are heading to an ecological and economic transition. The next 10 years is not going to be like the last 70 years. There's going to be a bunch of shock points that will sort of bring into relief the failures of the old system, the failures of the money system, the failures of our sort of ways of thinking. Things could go badly. We could go toward that extreme inequality, fortress mentality, the competitive, selfish nature, fear-based response, which is hardwired into us. And so you get a Blade Runner, you know, Mad, Mad Max kind of whatever your dystopian, your dystopian uh, movie of choice. Yeah, your apocoporn yeah. <laughs> uh, scenario. Or we kind of retool ourselves, both who our concept of ourself and society and the world and nature and tap back into some insights that have been, you know, it's not like they went away or anything that helps us build more durable, resilient economy, communities, relationship to the earth. We've so already, this is an important moment. Totally, totally. Yeah. We're, okay. I mean, you and I could be having, you schedule this conversation in a month and something will happen in the next month that kind of a 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, sort of extreme weather event or an economic, 2008 economic meltdown where our whole way of thinking, contextualizing where we are would shift. You know, I'm not going to put a time frame on it, but soon. But that's possible. Oh, it's an, it's not, it's going to, I mean, it's more than possible. I mean. I'd actually like to flesh this out a little more. Yeah. Because this is something where some people in this project categorically deny yeah. that there is anything. I mean, we are just in the longer term on a great upward progressive climb to somewhere. Right. But it seems like in our conversation, there's a sense that, no, this isn't like a settled deal. The rosy future isn't coming necessarily. This is a moment. And also, I mean, that ties into the very idea of the project. You know, is this a moment where we need to be having the conversation, if it even matters at all? Yeah, no, I I, I think we're in an interest. I mean, you know, everybody probably thinks the moment they're living in is interesting. But, but I think, you know, simply just energy, fossil fuel, climate change. You know, we've altered the climate one degree Celsius. We're on the track to alter it another degree. We know that when that happens, there'll be certain feedback loops. It's not a linear process. It's a dynamic process. That will have impacts on food systems and what parts of the world get too much water and what parts don't have enough water and acidification of the ocean. So there's sort of an ecological picture that I think, as I read the sciences, we're heading pell-mell into altering our ecology in a way that will then alter our day-to-day -day living. And, you know, it'll show up economically probably for most people. It'll be your food is going to cost more. You're going to have to retrofit your house because your roof blew off. We're going to have to tax ourselves more and invest in infrastructure because the pumps in the subway system are blah, 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 you know. Does that lead to some big, I mean, post-apocalyptic, we were just talking about the movies, does that lead to a real collapse or does that lead to just sort of a, uh, we adapt and we kind of move along? I'm with this guy, John Michael Greer. I think you don't have a collapse like, boom, to neo-primitivism or whatever. I think that it, what happens is it, there's a sort of shift and then there's an adaption and then there's another shift and an adaption. But that it's ultimately, it's it's slow motion I don't think of it as collapse. I think it's just a transition. We lived through a period of the extraction of cheap fossil fuels, and we built a whole society around that. 
and we built up a population based on a fossil fuel industrial food system. And depending on how much natural gas we think is there, and da, 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 we will kind of have this sort of bumpy descent from, it'll be a long descent from that sort of glory fossil fuel nirvana that we had circa, you know, 1971 or something like that, you know. But we'll have to, we'll certainly be altering our settlement patterns and living space and regionalization will return as a source of security. We'll think of individual and community resilience in different ways. And that will draw out our communitarian impulses or it'll draw out our fear-based, you know, selfish impulses. So that's really what the conversation is about. It's sort of preparing us to go in one of those directions or another. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's a toss up. I think it's about preparation for a transition to a new economy. It doesn't have to be scary and apocalyptic. I like to think there's some opportunities here to transform our communities and our and ourselves to the next phase of the next chapter. A lot of the changes we need to make are being blocked by fearful or old ways of thinking or attachment to outdated models or to just simply denial, you know. The longer we stay in denial, the more unfortunately upheaval-like that transition will be. So we could have 30 years ago made societal choices to go down a different path in terms of energy systems. We didn't. Oh, well. So now we're going to have to live with the consequences of poor planning. But people will have to come together, you know, to figure this out. Uh, I'm not, I'm not like inherently optimistic about that. I mean, I think I, I read uh, a whole bunch about the Dust Bowl. The takeaway was a lot of people lived through the Dust Bowl and still didn't change their worldview about right. what was going on, whether it was they, you know, this was an act of God punishing them or they did not believe it was a human created disaster. We can be 10 years from now with our coastlines looking quite different and you're still going to have climate deniers. The project really isn't about convincing everybody. What keeps you, we've talked about so much dark stuff, what keeps you from despair? I do think the transition movement, people who sort of have an analysis around both the ecological and economic changes ahead and are kind of creating in the shell of the current economy the new economy. So the people who are sitting around saying, what will the businesses of the future be? What will our energy systems be? How can we create more resilient food systems? How do we prepare cities, adapt them to the future? All of that sort of practical, constructive program. Some of that can be very unideological. It's just uh, preparedness. It's just good old-fashioned American preparedness. People who are organizing these resilient circles, you know, which are like support groups for it's like AA for fossil fuel addicts and people who are who see that the economy's not going to come back to some glory day in the past. That's a piece of the work. And then I think there's something that's focused on how do we shift consciousness. And that will I think be an interaction between external events and the trip points if you will, the flashpoints, the economic and ecological wake up moments. There will be an opportunity to have some of these conversations and new ways of thinking, and hopefully they, they'll they break through. You know, So organizing the segment of the 1%, I 
I'm all about that. Haven't given up. Consciousness shifting, offering up new models for people to organize to meet their basic needs, and resilience organizing, transition preparation work among those who are already reading the signs of the times and want to roll up their sleeves and get to work and understand that whether it's Obama or Romney, nothing fundamental is going to shift on that front and that you have to operate where you have room to move and where you have agency. I think people are waiting to be invited to a grander endeavor, a more meaningful endeavor. We just haven't scheduled the party yet. Yeah, and it's a beautiful day. It's an absolutely beautiful day. I try to notice in each and every moment the gifts that are there, which are huge, huge. For me, it's not really about hope. It's noticing what's already here. So there we go. It's it's a beautiful day. <laughs> I got to admit, it was kind of humorous listening to that and uh, standing in the rain waiting for the bus. It's like, <laughs> this, is, this is not a beautiful day. <laughs> Especially as the crazy homeless man across the street was screaming at the top of his lungs that... We weren't necessarily going to die at his hands, but we'd feel pain. <laughs> oh, you're so... Ah, you just... You ruin everything. I, it's my societal role. <laughs> I'm jealous of that. So where do we want to launch into this? There's a lot of stuff in here. We kind of set things up to be a comparison between Cameron and Priscilla and Chuck. Yeah. So you want to go there first? I think that's a great place to jump in. The first thing I thought when I was listening to this was Priscilla talks in her conversation with you about how she's not really interested in working with the 1%. She critiques the modern left for being run by the same people that run the right, which is the people with money. She complains about when she first became politicized, the organizers she was working with being, paraphrase, a bunch of Trustafarians. <laughs> um, so, of course... Because of that, I see an immediate response from Grimm to Collins, which is that while he may have the right ideas, he's still coming from money, and the people he's working with are too invested in, in the systems to actually seek meaningful change. Right. What does relative equality mean? Chuck doesn't give us specifics, and I don't think anyone could when you're talking about something like striving towards greater relative equality. It's a more abstract goal. And I wonder if, if that would be substantial enough to get Priscilla interested in this conversation with the 1%. I mean, Chuck himself says, look, we can't sit around and wait for the 1% to do this. There are a lot of people there who are already our allies. We should work with them. But we should also work from the ground up. So I think Chuck is interested in, in changes on both fronts, working from the top down and working from the bottom up. The other thing that I, I think Chuck does really well is he humanizes the 1%. And he does a good job, I think, of dispelling the notion that the 1% is a unified block that is just out to screw all of us over. Right. And he does that not only through his descriptions of talking to them, but also through who he is. Exactly. These are people. Yeah. <laughs> Many of them care. You know, there's another interesting connection with Priscilla and also um, with Cameron. When we talked about the environment, they were concerned about it, but it wasn't a very high priority. In both cases, they felt it can support a lot more. You know, it seemed like they were seeking a broadening of the middle class, bringing a lot of people into the middle class, 
maybe encouraging people to not consume as much, maybe not having quite the level of physical affluence spread wide, but a real sense that, you know what, the environment can handle that load. Right, that we're nowhere near any sort of resource limits at this point. Right, right, which is obviously very different than some of our more environmentally focused thinkers have suggested, but they've talked perhaps less about class. And so here's Chuck, and he sort of brings these issues together in a new way, right? Absolutely. The jump he made from from the social and economic commons to the environmental commons, I think that was huge. Because he, he says that we can't have... The social commons doesn't exist without the environmental commons, without the natural commons. I'd never heard anything like that before. And it's an interesting argument. Like, when you think of yourself as embedded in this larger environmental or natural or whatever you want to call it, ecological system, when you think of that, you see very directly how things circle back to you. The poison you dump in the well, well, you drink that, you know? And then kind of understanding that physically, you move into the social realm. Right. Oh, if I am successful in a way that leaves these people impoverished, that will circle back to me in a lot of different ways that make our society tense or fragile or just less enjoyable. And that negatively affects me. Yes. There's something interesting there because it it personalizes the threat. In some ways, that's a very effective argument, especially when, when dealing with people with a lot more to lose. I think that's a good transition point to something else he talks about, which is being a part of society as well how important it is to recognize the society you're embedded in and really reach out and try and reconnect with them. You know, we've just been talking about a lot of the material ways in which it helps you. At the same time, he would also argue that, well, there are a lot of psychological benefits to that social connection. I think that's where you start to see some of the definition of the good that comes up in this conversation. He seems to be really focused on the benefits of connectedness with society, collaboration with your neighbor. He talks about, you know, collaboration lighting up your brain just as much as sex and chocolate. But he's also very much focused on respect for the individual. So there's a, there's a cool balance there between the benefits you get mentally and socially from working with other people and the benefits you get mentally and socially for working for yourself. There's this little connection back to uh, Colin Kammerer here the power of the fMRI and right. what can you see? Because there's a, a big assumption in that, that we are learning things about the mind that actually give us sort of a scientific basis for an understanding of human nature and to some extent, an understanding of what's good. We see throughout the project connections between the good and technology. Yeah. But this one's very different. This is not the idea that technological progress is good. This is the idea that technological progress allows us to see the good and allows us to maybe figure out what the good is. And the good is something that exists within us or between us. And it's interesting, too, because, I mean, when I was talking to Tim Cannon, he used a lot of similar neuropsychology and science as a microscope looking at the brain and got a very different idea of good out of that, you know, which went far to the other direction towards us as individualistic, as fueled by a strong survival drive that was more competitive than collaborative. Right. I think Chuck acknowledges that as well when we talk about 
if we have some sort of economic crisis, are we going to pull together? Are we going to break apart? Is it going to be the collaborative? Is it going to be the competitive that wins? Like, Right. So maybe we'll just have to leave that to our listeners to think about for themselves. And if they have any thoughts, hey, we still have a website. We still have comments on it. Send us a message. That was Chuck Collins, interviewed at the Institute for Policy Studies in Boston, Massachusetts, on October 23rd, 2012. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul. <laughs>